0: Nothing means anything. We live in a zoo, but we pay for our cages and our feedings to who who? Let's talk about life. Life in the
1: human Zoo. Welcome
0: to Life in the Human Zoo. I'm Mike O'Connell, your host for a weekly compendium of stories, music, poetry, and some of the wisest wisdom available to humankind so let us start our journey of absurdity now after far too long of a break we are back at it here at life in the human zoo and i feel i owe an explanation to you the devoted and beneficent listener as to why this hiatus was so rotund in its nature to make a long and torrid story short, the zookeeper reprogrammed me, and for three weeks I was living as a married father of three daughters and working as a traveling bubble wrap salesman based out of East Troy, New York. While at times it was nightmarish and surreal, I struggled to explain it other than it was a fever dream wrapped in a K-hole, deep-fried in acid with a heaping side of bath salts, there is a hint of sadness now that it has been reversed. I have to say it, I am really going to miss that family, especially my wife Carla. Her loving nature, her detailed handjobs, and her peerless bush. I'm going to miss laughing, fishing, and hiking with my daughters, not to mention threatening the lives of their prospective suitors. I'm really going to miss working at Best Bubble Incorporated as well. Let me tell you that not even the hardest rat bastard in the land can keep a smile from his permafrowned face when the bubble wrap guy comes by. You feel like a god in many ways, having bubble wrap at your constant disposal. You can amuse adults and children alike in a moment. And if you find yourself in life-threatening danger, you can use said bubble wrap to imitate gunfire, sending your attackers fleeing for their criminal, fuck face lives. A versatile product, and I was proud to sell it. I'll also miss the night's drinking punchless rum punch at Colby's Bar and Foodless Grill. Just big cups of lukewarm rum. It was fucking disgusting. And that jackass Ron was always bragging that he invented the most important component in a fax machine, and we would rib him that he's fibbing, not knowing if he's fibbing or not, but ribbing him nonetheless. And sometimes Colby would get so drunk, he would forget he owned the bar and pull out a gun to try and rob the place, and we would just laugh, making him a great deal more grumpatudinal, until someone would knock him out with a mallet, and then we would drink for free. I'll tell you, there is nothing sweeter than a free drink on the tab of a recently malleted man. And then my daughters would arrive to fetch me from the bar, telling me I had an early morning and the bubble wrap wasn't going to sell itself. Though, in a way, it does sell itself. It's such a goddamn fine and indispensable product. And I would crawl into bed and sleep soundly next to Carla, excited for the next repetitive yet beautiful day in my new life. However... There must have been a glitch in the reprogramming as three days ago I woke back here in Los Angeles, California. And so, borscht and hand jobless, I must make the best of the zoo life that has been hoisted upon my yoke. My zoo burden is my own to carry. So let's get this shadow started. It's the poetry trough coming straight out of the gate like it saw something attractive and appealing on the other side of the gate. This first poem is yet another practical poem that can be used in your daily life. Here is a brief PSA regarding practical poetry. As I have long argued, the more practical poetry there is in the zeitgeist, the more quickly poetry will retake its rightful spot above video games, music, television, and movies as the most desired of the entertainment mediums. So let's get to writing some practical-ass poetry and dipping it deeply into that motherfucking zeitgeist. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? zoo, on to the poem. There comes a time in one's wanderings when one runs into a human who conveys a boredom so profound that bronzing them would greatly improve their tolerability and make them at least somewhat intriguing. And so I have written a brief poem to be read to any and all of those guilty of the high crime of inciting boredom. It's called Make Yourself Useful and Bore Me to Sleep. It begins after a very boring introduction. So I kind of got the coupon bug from my mom, and the three out of four doctors agree that there is no known cure. <laughs> but seriously, coupons have really saved me boatloads. I put aside all the money I save with coupons, and I go on a classic rock cruise every year. Got really sick from a bad crab cocktail in the last one in Miss Kansas, and the guess who, but Ange, my friend, took a bootleg vid of American Woman, so it wasn't a total loss. I still have the vid if you're interested. And hey, if you're ever in the market for coupon tips then I am the owner of that market, and I am open for business and giving away said coupon tips gratis. Excuse me, sir, I couldn't help but overhear you talking endlessly and have taken the liberty of writing you a poem. It is called Make Yourself Useful and Bore Me to Sleep. I've misplaced my sedatives and need to sleep soon and heard you spouting tedium from across the room. You seem so tragically boring it's miles beyond belief But it may just be you who can bring me relief Can you come join me in the room of my bed And sit next to me and talk of the things in your head They are so painfully inane that I could foresee Just one minute of listening would put me to sleep So hark! let us dash into the night quite post-haste For such tedious blather must not go to waste Your voice will be laudanum your story's oh so dull. And into sweet slumber, I will finally be lulled. And if you keep talking after slumber I achieve, I dare say I'll wake not from a sleep dug so deep. And when they come find me, forevermore lacking breath, I'll be just one more victim. You've done bored straight to death. You got a lot of fucking nerve, pal. This is a Life in the Human Zoo warning. This poem has precipitated violence on many occasions, as the truly boring human often thinks that they are, in fact, highly interesting. Thus, they are deeply insulted by the above posy. Life in the human zoo is not responsible for any shenanigans, whether fun-loving or violent, that result from the recitation of this verse. biku Danshe, and finally, waba. This year has tested the health and sanity of many, and we here at Life in the Human Zoo are elated to see that things are returning to at least an absurd version of our former reality. Let's be honest, zoo lockdown was unpleasant and grew more rotten by the day. It was one of these festering rotten days I came across a song that I found helped me immensely. It was on a promenade I was promenading whilst listening to a recording of the Latin American Guitar Festival, an album I highly recommend, when I came across an instrumental song that so captured the feeling of alienation that had ballooned within me during the ever-worsening catastrophe. I immediately fell in love with it and listened to it continuously, much to the dismay of my neighbors and my many Cabbage Patch children. It hit some spot that is not often hit, to be sure, So I looked up the song and found it is called Milonga by Jorge Cardoso, and it is a woeful tune about the loneliness of a cowboy far from home riding the steps and longing for the touch of his lover. That loneliness was heavily prevalent at the time for many, and the theme seemed miraculously to fit perfectly snug with our current human quandary. But there also dwelt within the song a hopefulness, While it is somewhat somber in nature, in my eyes it contains the hope that after a long physically and emotionally arduous journey, that the protagonist does return home. Different, but better for having gone through such a thing. So I started to learn the song, and now with humble apologies to the masterful composer Jorge Cardoso, I offer you a song that contains all of the emotions, and some of them you didn't even know you had, without ever saying a word. I give you Melonga. My dear friend Aheno Barbas Gneisenhauer, after years of toiling, has finally finished his album of Fife songs. He's hired me to make a commercial, so here is the ad I made for Aheno Barbas' new Fife album that drops this Tuesday. The album is called Never Bring a Flute to a Fife Fight. Enjoy. Finally, the most egregiously pun-filled Fife album that no one knew they wanted is now the most egregiously pun-filled Fife album available for general auditory consumption. Ready your music holds for the Fife stylings of Aheno Barba's Geneisenhower and his new album called Never Bring a Flute to a Fife Fight. Including over 30 possible yet unlikely hits such as Take My Fife Please, You Are But A Surf In My Fifedom 20 Years To Fife, Cuts Like A Fife If The Fife Fits, You Must Play That Shit The Fife Ain't Leaving Till 6 In The Morning That's Fife, And Never One To Shy Away From His Hatreds For Flautists Fife You And The Flute You rode In On And More The reviews are in. Rolling Stone says, If Billboard had a chart for Fife albums, this would most likely be on it due to the sheer lack of Fife albums. Housekeeping Magazine says, The ultra-high frequency of this pun-ridden album has been proven to make houseplants turn away from direct sunlight in hopes of a merciful and quick death. And Supreme Court Justice and fierce Fife critic Brett Kavanaugh says, As far as Fife albums go, hopefully this one only goes as far as the trash. A Haino Eisenhower's new album, Never Bring a Flute to a Fife Fight, is available now wherever you illegally download your Fife albums. Get it or don't, those are the options. Well, if it isn't Poetry Trough's older brother, Short Story Trough, it appears to have one story for us today. It is a tale about a boy who cries music and bleeds joy. It is called The Boy Who Cried Music and Bled Joy. The boy was born at 11:15 in the morning. This time of birth meant various things to various people, all of which were rather uninventive and pedestrian considering what the boy was. His mother was deeply convinced that these four numbers in a row, combined with the date of birth, four more numbers in a row, dictated the outcome of one's life. It was the time and date of your birth that said who you will love, how much money you will make, and was especially helpful in discerning what personality problems you would one day possess. The doctor who delivered the baby lamented the child being born on the quarter hour. His superstitious grandmother had taught him that this is a sign that the child will be allergic to many kinds of grass and hot dogs. What's the point of being young when you can't roll in the grass and eat hot dogs? The doctor thought. Might as well give him a lunch pail and a parakeet and send him straight into the mines. That his grandmother's superstition was a creation of her mental illness Never crossed the doctors sat in mind. The nurse who assisted in the delivery was baffled that it was only 11.15 and she had already delivered nine babies. She was a very practical person, but having a hand in the birthing of babies was the one thing that made her philosophical. Nine destinies brought into the world without the smallest inkling of how they will turn out, what they will achieve, or what structures they will possibly burn to the ground. It was too much not to think about, she thought. The boy's father paid the time no mind, as he had left shortly after the conception and was presently eating a filet of fish in a substandard motel. As that sandwich and those thoughts raced through the mouth and minds of those involved, the doctor slapped the brand new baby boy upon his rear. The boy began to cry. Perhaps cry is not the right way to put what the boy did. There were tears that came from his eyes, sure. It was the sound that emanated from his tiny lips that did not fit the definition of crying. It was more of a song. The song that came from the babe didn't sound like one voice at all. There were undertones and overtones. The musical subtlety suggested that many gods had collaborated on its creation, each giving their finest notes and chords. Ganesh providing the soothing bass notes from his trunk, Zoroaster donating an inaudible note that is responsible for the catatonic quality that overtakes the listener. Gaia contributed a chord that instills the warmth and calm of being held by one's mother. Bacchus donated the lament of a million drunkards, which, when invoked, could wet the eye of the cruelest dictator. As the baby wept in such exquisite agony, the music continued, becoming more beautiful the more impassioned he became. The mother of the boy was transported to a beautifully catered affair she had attended long before her pregnancy. As she watched herself move through the room, she became elated by her own beauty. Every group of men and women she would approach, while once having looked perfectly passable for the occasion, would be reduced to so many hobos and harpies by her radiant, undeniable perfection. The mother of the boy was so captivated by her former self that she could have stayed there until she died. The music transported the doctor to his childhood bedroom, where he watched his younger self making a model airplane. He could see the happiness spilling from every pore of his young self as the boy hummed and worked. The doctor, who lived a joyless life with especially long hours, was reminded that he had once been happy. To the joyless, this reminder can often be enough to inspire them to be happy again. And happy he became. The nurse saw an older version of herself sitting on a porch with a man she had never seen. The easy way the two engaged and the man's occasional kisses filled the nurse with a comfort she had never known. She had struggled to find happiness due to an imperfect childhood and a terrible taste in men. This quiet and ideal scene was enough to keep her enraptured for eternity. The music then became softer and softer as the moans of any crying child would. It must be noted that the music that came from the boy followed to the letter the two rules of beauty. First, it had to end. No beautiful thing can last forever. And secondly, re-entry into drab reality from a place of great beauty is difficult, if not impossible. The mother, the doctor, and the nurse were having great difficulty with re-entry, to say the very least. Each looked around, confused at their surroundings. The doctor was startled to find a baby in his hands. After that moment of confusion, all three became downcast at being ripped from their joy— The sadness quickly turned to anger at whoever was responsible for stopping it. And three angry looks finally came to rest upon the baby boy. They eyed each other nervously, wondering who would have the gall to do it first. Then, like the rat that has just discovered the button that brings forth food, the boy's mother bent forward and spanked him hard. Again he cried the most beautiful music in the world. And again they were returned to their private place of ecstasy. Upon returning home with the boy, his mother learned quickly the great resolve it required to not indulge in the music her child cried. It was akin to putting ten pounds, eight ounces of heroin in a diaper and asking a junkie to keep it safe. An ecstatic journey to her past was only an aggressive poke in the ribs away. The ambrosia of Olympus could be obtained by twisting his delicate little ankle just so. But the heavy guilt of her motherly duty outweighed even her lust to live in memory. She procured earplugs and vowed to hide the boy's talent. Or was it a curse? It was neither, she decided. He is allergic to sadness, and I will protect him from it. He will have a happy life, she thought, never realizing that she was repeating the mantra of all mothers that no mother can fulfill. And so she tried to keep sad things away from the boy. He could not read the Velveteen Rabbit. She spoke not of war or plague, as most mothers do. She dodged his questions when he would point out some iniquity he had seen in the grocery store. But the thing that she worked most diligently at was keeping him from understanding death. She had remembered the day that death secured itself as a reality in her young mind, and she felt she had wept silently ever since. It was a Wednesday, she reflected. So the boy grew up knowing nothing of death and very little of strife. Only a fool would have considered her foolish for doing what she so foolishly thought was right. Upon hearing her attempts at sheltering the boy, one is brazenly reminded of Habermas's third and perhaps most potent parental paradox which states, That which the parental party withholds from the parented party, i.e. ideas, liquor, for the means of securing the safety of the parented party can also be the thing that really fucks the kid up and may possibly prove to be why the parented party perishes prematurely, much to the parental party's dismay. Time passed, as it is wont to do, and we find ourselves reunited with the boy, now four, and his mother, now weary from caring for such an anomaly, on a routine trip to the mall to procure clothing. In a rare moment of forgetfulness, the mother became enamored with a necklace in a store window and forgot for a moment her fragile child. The boy wandered over to a fountain, drawn to it by the other children gathered there. As he came to the fountain's edge, his clumsy little legs betrayed him, and he tripped. As he fell, he attempted to grab the edge of the fountain, and in the process, cut his finger. The boy's mother snapped back to reality in time to turn around and witness that bizarre pre-cry moment that is only available to tiny humans. She quickly put in her earplugs and ran to the boy to try and stifle his cry, but alas, was too late. His musical cry echoed through the crowded mall and soon everyone gathered around him had been transported to their own personal heaven. His mother saw that the blood from his finger had begun to run down his arm. With nothing to wipe the blood with, she placed his little finger in her mouth and for the first time tasted the blood of the boy. She soon found that his blood was even more potent than his tearful tune. Upon ingesting the boy's hemoglobin, she experienced the beauty of the universe in a way no human had before. The blood brought her to an omnipotent place where she saw the insignificance of her earthly person, the poetry of the stars, and the pulsating and undying energy that bandied about the cosmos. The boy's crying came to an end as his mother flew through the rings of Saturn in her mind, unable to cease suckling on the boy's finger. The other mall-goers snapped out of their revelry and saw a woman drenched in ecstasy, sucking the boy's finger, and went closer to investigate. They soon found that the blood was the impetus for her ecstasy, and joined her in feeding upon the poor child's essence. When the mother of the boy came to, hours later, she found herself back in the mall, surrounded by equally flummoxed strangers, feeling that she was missing something very important. But the human mind was not engineered to handle such input as she and the others had endured, And with only a faint memory of the happiness they'd encountered, they returned to their lives. Sadly, again, the two rules of beauty had been followed to the letter. A beautiful thing cannot last forever, and re-entry into drab reality from that place of supreme beauty is difficult, if not impossible. The boy who cried music and bled joy had arrived on earth to show people the path to happiness, and they had eaten him alive. And this, fellow humans is exactly why we cannot have nice things. Thank you from the depths of our hearts for taking the time to listen to Life in the Human Zoo. It is our hope that it brought a pleasure immense unto your mind and spirit. A special thanks to Christian Duguay, who produced Malonga, And check out his podcast, Valley Heat, wherever you get your podcasts. It is hysterically awesome, and I don't just say that because I play his disgruntled father-in-law. And please, for your own sake, human, look up Jorge Cardoso's song, Milonga, on YouTube. His rendition is beyond beautiful. And now we end the show with a song about when a relationship doesn't work out, but deep in your heart... You just know that had it occurred at some other time, on some other world, it would blossom like the sweetest of roses. It is predictably called On Some Other World. May Sky Papa smile upon you, and may you thrive in the human zoo.
1: the world i'm the king and you're the queen we let the people rule themselves and just write each other poetry on some other world they keep us at the zoo to let the people watch and wonder how a love grew so true i wish i lived on any world other than this one On this one I don't have you On some other world there's a bed of silk and fleece And it's our job to make love on it To provide that world with energy On some other world the only time we get upset Is when we think about some other world Where we never met I wish I lived on any world other than this one On this one I can't have you On this world we both admit it's not to be But on some other world you sleep so soundly in my i um...